Acts chapter 2, we will begin and end there, and a lot in between. Uh, I'm so, so excited to be, be back with you after spending a couple weeks in our Sherman campus. Shout out to Sherman uh, that's with us right now. I appreciate you and was glad to be with you. And then uh, last Sunday in our Woodland Park, Colorado campus, uh, being a blessing there, God doing some pretty amazing things, saw um, man, just a lot of people touched by, by the work of God. And I'm excited to, to continue in, in talking through something that, man, I'm just, I, I have such a conviction of. Also, before I forget, I also want to welcome our Hugo campus that's with us right now uh, and just say thank you. And I pray your hearts are open to receive that, that the word of God is not bound by geography, nor is it bound by technology. But being joined together in word and spirit is meaningful and important, and I'm excited to, to be together as one church in multiple places, opening the word of God so that we might be touched by the spirit of God. Uh, and I want to talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit more today because I came into this year, as I've said before, with just a conviction around understanding and practicing the presence of God understanding what it means and how we develop uh, an awareness of God's presence in our lives and how important that is for the world. And I'm going to take this week and next week and, and build on how important you are in the work of God and how important His presence is for you, that you don't have to be some Bible scholar. You don't have to be um, there, this isn't like a, there isn't like a special class of people who get to experience God's presence that are the important people, but that everyday people in normal life are to be a dwelling place of God, that you are God's dwelling place. And I want to show you this because one of the things I, I also like to do and, and appreciate doing as a pastor is making you less intimidated by your Bible because you read your Bible and I don't know if you've read it or not, but it's confusing it's got some weird stuff in there. Uh, it's, it's got things that make you go, I don't know what's going on. Let me go to the easy stuff and like Proverbs or, you know, one of Paul's letters. And even those aren't super easy. So, um, so I, wanna, I wanna show you through a theme in scripture about God's presence, but what that means for you and what that means for every single one of us, not just some, some super Christian, but all of us being God's dwelling place. And so, Again, just with the frame from Acts chapter 2 in the outpouring, the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, See, show you a couple things, and then we're going to go back to the beginning. Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. All together there, ESV, New Living, kind of just makes it look like they're just in, in, a, in a singular place, but, but the words there, uh, King James, New King James, say one accord meaning there was a sense of unity and togetherness that wasn't just being in the same geographic location. It was a sense of being together for one purpose, not just in one place, okay? They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a, take note, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them, and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, so many things going on, but I wanna just pay attention to, to something that the writers 
are drawing our attention to, that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is drawing our attention to, and if I can get you to, to, to know anything, it would be this, that the biblical authors are literary geniuses, okay? You should never underestimate a biblical author for what they're doing, okay? Every detail matters. And in this case, uh, Luke is picking up on, on a very important theme in Scripture and communicating how that now comes into the people of God and the role of the Holy Spirit. And uh, there's so much about God's Spirit that is in Scripture. God's Spirit itself is a theme in Scripture, but I want to I really hone in on what, how the Holy Spirit communicates God's presence to us and why that matters for you and I in this new covenant in Jesus. So to do that, you got to go back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, we're going to only read from, from chapter 3, one verse, but I need to take a moment and establish the frame. Again, uh, as I've said repeatedly, this is a very important thing to keep in your mind. Your entire Bible is in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You never, ever, ever underestimate what's in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 uh, because the rest of your Bible is just pulling out what's in uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Uh, so God, by his spirit, you go to chapter 1 and 2, uh, the first couple verses of chapter 1, you have... Uh, the dark, watery chaos of creation, and God's spirit is hovering over those waters. God's, God's ruach, his spirit, is, is, is active in this chaos and brings order out of the chaos um, and uses the description about the process of bringing order out of chaos as good. This is good. And at the pinnacle of creation in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, you have the creation of humanity, um, and uh, in that creation, God creates human beings, and you have to ask yourself the question, why? Especially if he's all-knowing and knows what's about to happen. Um, and, and, and you just think, like, why, why would an eternal God even want to create what we know to be the universe? Like, th there's a reason why there is something instead of nothing, because there is nothing that demands the eternal God of Father, Son, and Spirit to have to create something. The Holy Trinity exists in an eternal community of love. So if you think, why? That means that within the eternal community of love, God wants other beings to participate in that community of love. And so he creates what we would call the universe. And there's so much in Genesis 1, far beyond, far beyond our understanding. But to see really God's heart in chapter 1, in the creation of humanity, you need to know this, this one frame, God wants to be with humans, okay? He wants to dwell with humans. And what I've tried to communicate throughout this series and almost any message I minister is for us to get an understanding of the heart of God. Because so many of us have grown up with the wrong framework of the character and nature of God. That God is mad at you, that God doesn't like you, that he just has to tolerate you. Um, and, and he had to send Jesus so that a couple people could kind of, sort of, maybe make it, you know? Like, that's just not the character of God. 
So from the very beginning, you need to see that, that the reason why God even creates the universe is to share the eternal community of love. He wants to show his love and he makes humans in his image to both share in that love and extend that love. And so in Genesis 1, chapter 1 and 2 together, you need to see is God creating a garden temple for him to dwell and specifically to dwell with people. Verse 26 to 28 in Genesis 1, it says, God says, let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion. And then verse 27 is a three-line poem. God creates man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then verse 28, God blesses his image-bearing creatures with the capacity to fulfill the vocation of being his image, being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, subduing it, and having dominion. Okay, so the image of God, of all the things it is, um, and it's many things, the first thing you need to understand about God's image is it's not something humans have, it's something humans are. And so we, it's, not, it's not whether or not we have the image of God. The question is, what are you imaging because you are imaging something. Humans are made that way. We cannot help it. It's just what we're made of. We are God's image. And so are we imaging him or are we imaging something else? But there's two things, two ideas. This, I've, I've thought, man, I'm, I'm still spending a lot of time wanting to understand this, um, the, what the image of God is, what it means for humans to be made in his image. And in the very least, it's two things. So let me give you two words that in the very least, this is what it means for humans to be made in God's image, representation and rule. Representation and rule. If you wanna add a third R, I say responsibility, but it's partly because responsibility is a core value of mine and I could be projecting that onto the text, but you know, it's there, I think it's there. In the very least, it's representation and rule. So what it means to be made in God's image is humans are God's representatives to creation. We represent him. And part of that representation is authority. Because of all the, th again, of all the things the image of God could be and maybe is, you cannot disassociate it from rule because in the first sentence of 26, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So representation and rule. Basically, priests to represent God's character to all of creation and have authority over that creation. So being made in God's image means we, have, we are his representatives and we are ruling on his behalf. That requires relationship. You cannot represent someone you don't know. So, so to fulfill the vocation of being his image bearers requires his presence. And God wants to dwell with his people. And he wants them to represent him well. He wants them to have authority over his creation that he calls good. That's what he wants to do. Well, how do humans do? Absolutely terrible. Instead of remaining in intimate fellowship with God represented by the tree of life, we seize autonomy from God and decide that we will represent ourselves and rule for ourselves by controlling the definition of good and bad. We'll be in charge of ourselves for ourselves and things go horribly wrong. 
Now, subtly here, the author is communicating something to us about the effects of that sin. It says that when they, when they partook of the fruit, their eyes were opened and they were ashamed and they hid themselves. They hid themselves from each other. But then verse eight says, and they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Your translation will, will probably say cool of the day or the evening time or whatever. The word cool there is actually ruach, the spirit or wind the cool breeze of the day. It's implied there, but it's actually God shows up and he shows up in the spirit, the wind of the day, the ruach of the day, meaning there shouldn't be an unfamiliar presence for them. Again, it's a garden temple where God wants to dwell with people. So he, I imagine he showed up every once in a while, right? Yes, he did. That's just, it's there. So, but if you think he shows up in the wind and... Um, you know, that could possibly be intimidating. You get the impression here that it's a cool breeze, but I mean, it's also possible that a windstorm comes in. And if you're familiar with the God who is normally walking in the garden and you're in right relationship with him, that's probably not a big deal. Except this time, look what happens. They hear the sound of him walking in the ruach of the day and they hid them, and, and the man and wife hid themselves from what? The presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Who hid from who? Man hid from God. You see how stupid sin makes us? You see how God did not hide from them. So, oh, you sinned, it's over. Nothing I can do about it. No, God still actually wants to be with them. But their sin has does, done, done something to the relationship where they want to hide themselves, ashamed and afraid. And now you see the downward spiral of sin's effect where even God is trying to communicate with Cain and Cain hides himself, runs from the presence of God. But it doesn't change God's heart to want to be with his people, so he has to arrange something different. Because, yes, you cannot be immersed in sin. You cannot be fully... Um, fully given yourselves over to sin and being God's holy presence. It creates quite a conundrum, a paradox, that God's holiness and goodness is also dangerous. And that's why they hid themselves. But if you fast forward the story to God delivering his people out of Egypt and brings them to Mount Sinai, he forms a covenant with them. And in the, the sort of introduction of the, the covenant is Exodus 19. Exodus 19 verse four says this, Keep in mind the image of God, representation and rule. This is God speaking to the people, actually speaking to Moses and telling Moses, this is what you say. Verse four, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. To be God's people, being in his image, new language here, 
is to be a kingdom of priests. The vocation of God's people is to be a kingdom of priests. That's the vocation of God's people. A kingdom of priests, not a kingdom that has priests, a kingdom of priests. Now connect that back to the image of God. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Have representation and rule. Kingdom of priests. This is what God wants with his people. He wants to be with his people and his people represent him, priests, with rule and authority, kingdom. To be under his authority, kingdom, and to have authority as being under authority, having authority, and that authority being a representation of his character and nature to all all the nations. He wants the whole nation to represent him. He wants the whole nation to be priests. And then he tells Moses, I'm going to show up. At Mount Sinai, I'm going to show up. I want to be with my people, so prepare them. Jump down to verse, six, verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud. Just keep cloud in mind. On the mountain and a very loud trumpet. A storm. A storm shows up. It's what happened, like a wind. It's a storm. <laughs> Look at this. This is so great. So that all the people of the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because Yahweh had descended on it in what? Fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. You see how the presence of God brought with it a cloud, you could say wind, and fire. And with it, like the creator of the universe shows up, it kind of calls everybody to attention, right? And then he speaks what's called the 10 commandments. The Hebrew word there is word, not commandment. Um, The 10 words. And he gives the 10 words to all the people, meaning everybody experiences his presence and his word. And look at their response, chapter 20, verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, uh, you speak to us and we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord because they were afraid. And now they were called to all be priests. And when God shows up, they freak out. Please, Moses, you you, you speak to us and we'll listen to you. (laughs) Sure. Moses said to the people, this is, this is confusing and for another day, okay? Because it sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Just look at it. He, Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. Don't be afraid. God's testing you so that you're, you, would be, you would fear him. Again, this is for another, the fear of the Lord is a whole nother rabbit trail that we're not going to go on. 
He, he wants there to be a proper level of honor and respect, but not distance. And there's one kind of fear that makes you turn and give distance. There's another kind of fear that brings respect and has a proper closeness. And he wants the right one to be in them. And then look at this, a very, very discouraging last verse here, verse 21. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. At that point, the people decided they did not want to fulfill the vocation of being a kingdom of priests. They would rather just have a priest. Instead of being in God's presence themselves and representing that to the nations, they would rather just have one guy. And so now you have God wanting all of humanity to be his image bearers, a kingdom of priests. All of humanity messes that up. God makes a covenant with one family and wants that whole nation to be his priests, to represent him to the nations, and that whole nation declines. Now you're back down to one single person. But what is God's attitude and heart about this? Chapter 25, verse 8, God says to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. God still wants to be with his people. Even though they have declined to be his priests, he still wants to dwell with them. God wants to dwell with his people. And there has to be a proper arrangement for that. And so you have long and boring chapters about the tabernacle. I get it, it's boring. It's very meaningful and very important, but you know, you're reading how many hand breaths a certain side of the tabernacle curtain is. I get it, I get, you just sort of wear thin on that. And not just once, it happens twice in the book of Exodus. So to save you all that, to the end of the very last chapter, look at what happens when God, who is at the top of Mount Sinai, comes into the tabernacle. So his presence goes from the, the, the whole mountain into just the sanctuary. Chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, wind, storm, cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled, keep that word in mind, filled the tabernacle. And then verse 38 describes how they, they would experience his presence and his glory for the cloud, wind, storm of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So cloud or wind and fire. And so this is how now God is gonna dwell with his people. He doesn't prefer this, but this is the arrangement that he's working with his people where they are, that he will dwell with his people in the tabernacle. And then later you would fast forward and it would be in the temple. And you can just write down Leviticus 9 because I know you're just eager to find out all that's in the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 9 verses 23 and 24. Verse 22, the priest blesses the people. So now you have a priesthood that God ordains. So it's not just Moses, it's a whole family and a whole clan would be his priests. And they, they go through these ordination processes, which are really cool, but somewhat boring and weird. Um, and then he blesses the people in verse 22, which you can kind of cross-reference that with Numbers chapter six, the blessing of Yahweh. Yahweh bless you and keep you. Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace or shalom. That's the blessing that would have been in verse 22. And then verse 23 of Leviticus nine, fire comes down. So you have fire, uh, fire and wind. Then 
jump to, fast forward, you know, a few hundred years um, to the building of the temple, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, when the priests came out of the holy place, so they've just built the temple and they've dedicated it to the Lord, the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of Yahweh so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. The same story said again in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 1 says, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord, the glory of Yahweh, filled the temple. Verse 3 says, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of Yahweh on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to Yahweh saying, for he is good, his steadfast love or his chesed endures forever. Okay, so God being with his people on the mountain, you have cloud, storm, wind, and fire and God's glory. It goes from the mountain to the tabernacle and you have cloud, wind, filling the tabernacle, filling the holy of holies, and there being fire. You have anointing the altar, fire and wind. You have the temple being built, and you have his presence being manifested through cloud or wind and fire and his glory filling whatever house has been dedicated to him. Do you see all the connection here? This is how God will be with his people. But it's a sticky situation because how can an unholy people dwell in the presence of a holy God? Right? That's a paradox. Honestly, the book of Leviticus is the answer. So just go ahead and plow through that. <laughs> I don't think I have the courage to do a weekend series on Leviticus, but when we got stuck in, in the storm, like ice for a couple days, that was the wrong move for the devil because I had two whole days with just me and Leviticus commentary. It was a wonderful day. There's a lot in Leviticus that I can't get to now. I just want you to see that his presence has a certain effect. And it's described as wind and fire and his glory filling whatever place is dedicated to him because he wants to be with his people. But why does he want to be with his people? What vocation do the people have that necessitates his presence? Being a kingdom of priests, imaging him to the world. His presence isn't primarily for his people. It's so that his people know him and are transformed by his presence, by his character, so that they can represent him to the world. Representation and rule, being his image, being a kingdom of priests. Well, how does Israel do? Terrible. You look at all the different narratives of your Old Testament, what, what happens in the story of Israel spread out over a, more, a little more than a thousand years is a, basically the same story from Genesis 3 to 11. You didn't know that? Now you do. We can go on literary design later, but that's, it's the same story where Israel ends up in exile in Babylon. Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, it's the same word as Babylon. 
Israel ends up over the course of 500 years, roughly 500 years after the dedication of the temple, they end up in exile and the temple destroyed. And so another very difficult, very confusing book that has some really important things mixed with a bunch of weird stuff is the book of Ezekiel, which is a priest, but before he was old enough to be ordained as a priest in the temple, he's captured and taken into exile. And so Ezekiel turns 30, which was the the age that they would be ordained to become a priest. Ezekiel turns 30 in Babylon and he's depressed. Because think about what his purpose in life was to be a priest of Yahweh in his temple. And now he's in a foreign land as an exile. And chapter one, which is pretty darn freaky, is his 30th birthday. And instead of ordination at the temple, he has visions of God in exile. And just a couple places in Ezekiel, just to highlight, save you some trouble and some confusion, there's just three important places as it relates to this theme in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 10, the glory of the Lord leaves the temple. He prophetically sees into the spirit where the glory of Yahweh that we saw in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 7 fill the temple, now it leaves the temple. That's why a foreign land can come destroy a temple because God wasn't there. His people had spent centuries not fulfilling their vocation and rebelling against God, including setting up idols in the temple sacrificing children in the courts of the temple to a foreign God. It's bad stuff. So God's glory can't be there. So it leaves. Then Ezekiel 33, Ezekiel gets word that the temple has been destroyed. Makes sense. God wasn't there. Which was interesting because then God was actually with his people in exile. But only Ezekiel had eyes to see. Then you have a wild ride of visions all through Ezekiel. But chapters 40 to 43, he has visions of a new temple and a new people as you keep going past 43. That chapter 42 is where God shows back up to this new temple. And so you start looking, where is this new temple? And what is this new temple going to be like? Another prophet, the prophet Joel, correlates this to God's Holy Spirit. When Joel 28, sorry, Joel 2, verse 28, the prophet Joel says this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit, not just on a tabernacle, not just on a temple, but on all people. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. I still like that I don't dream a lot, just so you know. That just means I'm not an old man yet. And look at this. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. Chapter three, twice in chapter three in his conclusion He talks about dwelling on Zion, back with his people. And so there's this correlation between God's spirit being poured out, there being smoke, cloud, wind, and fire. 
and that will be how his presence comes back to his people. Then you have, man, all the Gospels, and I'm going to summarize the whole Gospels in one verse. John 1, 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt, dwelt among us. That word dwelt there is the word tabernacle. Jesus was the tabernacle. Remember, God wants to be with his people. His people keep hiding themselves, keep rebelling, keep pushing him out. So what does God do? He becomes man and tabernacles with his people. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. God's glory is a life full of grace and truth. Oh, you, you thought it was like a, a glory cloud. It's not. It's the character of God revealed through grace and truth. A life full of grace and truth is the glory of God. It is evidence that you actually know the character of God, a life transformed by grace and truth. That here, Jesus did it perfectly, and that was God's glory that dwelt among us. You look at the other three Gospels, all four Gospels pay attention to Jesus' baptism. And what you have is similar language to Exodus 40, when God's presence went into the tabernacle, and 1 Kings 8, 2 Chronicles 7, God's presence going into the temple is the same language of God's spirit coming down on Jesus. Jesus is the new temple. And if you read your gospels that way, you'll see it. He is what God always intended the temple to be, a people who bear his image, who reveal his glory, who represent him. John pays very careful attention to this. In John 5, twice, Jesus says, I don't do anything on my own. Only what I hear the Father saying do I speak, and only as I see what I see the Father doing, I judge accordingly. Representation and rule. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 15, that he, Jesus, is the image of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, same thing. Jesus is the image of God. Representation and rule. And then he calls his people to be transformed by him into his image. Romans chapter 8. Whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed into the image of his dear son. That he might be the firstborn of a very large family. What kind of family? A family of a kingdom of priests. Peter said as much. We'll talk about that next week, about priesting him. Right now, I just want you to see his presence and how important you are as a new temple. For anyone who's called upon Jesus, you are a new temple. You are what God always intended the temple to be. That's how important you are. So back to Acts chapter two. Look at it again. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together or in one accord in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. 
tuned in readers are going to go, oh, I've heard this before. You're now a tuned in reader. And it filled the entire house. Hmm. And divided tongues as of fire appeared and rested on what? Each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. God's presence was no longer bound to a place, but given to a people. And then guess what? When Peter starts preaching, what does he quote? Joel chapter two. Hey, this is the spirit of God being poured out, but correlated with what? A new temple, a new dwelling place, where now our sin doesn't separate us from God's presence. And now we don't have to hide from his goodness. Because of Jesus's forgiveness, if you just wanna cross-reference John chapter 20, you know what, I'll just do that next week. Well, no promises, but I think I'm gonna do it next week. Where he breathes on his disciples and says, receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit now, the Holy Spirit, is now in us as God's presence. The Apostle Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that our bodies are temples. But he never wants you to think of that as you by yourself. He always wants to associate it with a we, God's people. The people who call upon the name of Jesus are the dwelling place of God. You are the new temple. You don't go to a new temple. You are the new temple. So you having to milk cows at four in the morning are there as God's image bearer bringing his presence. When you go to work, wherever you go to work, not super spiritual work, not you know, nonprofit work or ministry work. Your life is ministry. Stop thinking ministry is something you do. Think of ministry as the life you live. You are his temple. You are his dwelling place. We all want to experience his presence, right? No? Okay. I want to experience his presence, but my limited experience of his presence is not on him if I've already called upon the name of the Lord. If I've been filled with the Spirit, it's a done deal. It we don't need a new rushing wind and fire that he already poured out his Spirit on what? All flesh. You already have his Spirit. The question is, have you, re have you responded to it? Have you responded to the Holy Spirit? Have you surrendered to the Holy Spirit so that your life might be immersed, up with the Holy Spirit might be upon you? One way to say the Holy Spirit is in you, for you. The Holy Spirit is upon you for others. We'll talk about that next week. But I need you to see how important you are. And, and Luke was very careful in his language selection. When you have surrendered your life to Jesus, it is the same thing, less dramatic, I get it, but it is the same thing as God's spirit coming off of the mountain into the tabernacle. You might say, well, I didn't really feel it the same way. Fantastic, because if you did, it would just destroy you. <laughs> like God's goodness is so good and weighty. Actually, glory, the word glory is a Hebrew word that means heavy, kavod. Uh, one one uh, pagan ruler in the book of Judges was described as kavod, kavod. Heavy, heavy. 
It's translated very fat, heavy, heavy. God's presence is weighty. His glory is weighty. And by the Holy Spirit, he's in you. That's how important you are. I don't know if you, have you been around someone that you think is important and you get all weird about it? And like you say stuff, you're like, why did I even open my mouth? So when, when, you, when you have honor for someone, their, their presence means something to you. It's weighty. And you carry that on the inside of you. That's how important you are. When you go into your workplace that you think is just a dumpster fire of evil, you bring the weighty presence of God because you are the temple. You bring the temple right into that dumpster fire. When you engage in the potential cesspool of social media, who are you imaging? Because you're going to image something. Who are you imaging? Your presence is an extension of God's holy presence through his Holy Spirit. He finds you worth putting his presence in. You're, you're, that's why your life was worth the blood of Jesus. Jesus shed his blood for you. No, you didn't earn it. No, you couldn't deserve it. Let's just, let's just get off that. His grace in truth is extended to you in such a way that you, however bad you feel, however neglected you feel, however unimportant you feel, however hidden you feel, however much of a loser you feel, you were worth the blood of Jesus in such a way that he found your life worth putting his presence into. And not just for you. And so really, the question about his presence is not whether or not you're experiencing it. It's whether or not you are paying enough attention to not just for yourself experience his presence that's in you, but surrender to him in such a way that his presence is released through you. So it's possible your experience of his presence is limited, maybe by revelation, you just don't know how important you are and how much your life, including your body, is worth the presence of God. But it also could be you're worshiping something else and you're imaging something else. And part of the purpose of the gathering of the church is not so that you can show up to a new temple and experience God's presence. It's so that you can be with his people and release his presence. And in the releasing of the presence that you bring to others, you experience the presence that's released from others. Hence why Jesus says in Matthew 18, where two or more gathered in my name, there I am among them. He's among us because he's already in you and needs to be released through you. And so I think this is a moment where you need to decide how have you responded to the Holy Spirit, the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Have you surrendered? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus? That's always a first step so that your life can be salvaged by Jesus. But then have you, let, have you lived with other priorities and being filled with the Spirit is just something of the past for you? 
Or maybe life has just gotten so heavy and burdensome and discouraging that you just let the weights of the world weigh you down instead of being in the weighty presence of God. And I don't want you to take another minute, another day, and not recalibrate to the presence of the Spirit. That's not in a place, it's in the people. You. Maybe you've never experienced that. And you need to be prayed for, be filled with the Spirit. Maybe you need a fresh infilling. You read the book of Acts, the filling of the Spirit. Baptism of the Holy Spirit is an initial initial action. Filling of the Spirit is an ongoing. Just read the book of Acts and you'll see the disciples got refilled, not because they weren't filled, but because they needed a refreshing, a strengthening of God's Holy Spirit. That might be what you need today. So in our campuses, I'm going to ask the ministry teams and the prayer teams to come forward here if the ministry teams and prayer teams would come forward. And I want campus pastors in Sherman and Hugo, any of our campuses, I want you to steward the moment of what the Holy Spirit is saying and doing in your campus so that people can be connected and ministered to by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to release the campuses right now. Thank you for joining in and receiving of the word today.